I tried to get uh, Ed to tell me who Black was about once. It was like a, the final part of my cover story. I was, uh, you know, I, I was in his hotel room. We were drinking until like five in the morning, and that was, you know, it, it was a great moment. It was, it was sort of the moment when I was like, okay, I guess I'm really working, you know, for <laughs> yeah. you know, if you're talking for hours and hours, you just start throwing stuff out. You'd be like, you know, I remember being like, who is Black about? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he just he would not, would not go there. Ninety three X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast, presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. I'm very excited about today's episode. It's something that we have never done before. The beginning of something we've never done before, which is a mini-series devoted to one band, where we are going to go over every record, every tour, every important piece of minutia in the history of one band, in order to find out why this band is so significant in rock history. My goal is that if you are a fan of this band, you are going to learn something about this band. And if you don't care about this band at all, that you will somehow be compelled to care about this band by the end of this series. Now, the band that we are going to be talking about is Pearl Jam. And we're going to be talking about Pearl Jam because uh, they're getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame next month. That's the convenient excuse. But the real reason we're talking about Pearl Jam is that they are one of the more interesting bands in rock history. Uh, Certainly of American bands, I think. Like I said, we're going to be going through the whole band, the whole discography of Pearl Jam in seven episodes. Uh, All of the 90s albums are going to get their own episode. And then all of the albums that Pearl Jam have put out in the 21st century are going to be sort of divided into the last two episodes. Um, But the overarching narrative of what we're going to be talking about in this series is talking about how Pearl Jam, in essence, survived. Because this was a band that became hugely successful during a boom time in the music industry in the 1990s. You know, like when everyone was flush with all of this CD money, you know, and when it was possible for a rock band like Pearl Jam to sell a million records in one week, you know, numbers that we would never associate with a rock band in 2017, you know, only someone like Taylor Swift sells records like that. But in the early 90s, Pearl Jam really was that successful. And they became successful in an incredibly short period of time. So they have this period of intense success earlier in their career. And then something changes along the way where this was a band that made a conscious decision to essentially turn itself into a cult band. You know, a band that still had a sizable interest audience of, of diehards, but wasn't going to be a pop band anymore. And they were able to make that transition. You know, like last year, I went to Wrigley Field and I saw Pearl Jam play in a sold-out stadium. In spite of the fact of them not really having any pop hits for probably 15 years or so. 
Um, but that's the kind of band that Pearl Jam is now. And uh, I think it's a pretty interesting progression that they've made. And uh, we're going to try to figure out how exactly Pearl Jam was able to pull that off. And where exactly does Pearl Jam fit in the pantheon of American bands? Um, I'm really excited to delve into this. But before we get to the first installment of this series, which, by the way, I'm calling it Vitalogyology. Now, <laughs> I reserve the right to change that title, but I like it for now. So that's what we're, we're going to call this series. The first Celebration Rock miniseries about one band. It's called Vitalogyology. But before we get into that, uh, I have to do a shout out to our sponsor, which is Blue Apron. And, you know, Blue Apron, I'm sure you've heard about them already, but in case you haven't tried them, you know, they're, they are like the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Uh, and what does that mean? It means that they will ship great food to your house and they will tell you how to make it. And you will basically eat a lot better than you probably do now. You know, I, I mean, I don't want to make any judgment, judgments on you. Maybe you're a great cook. But I know that there's probably a lot of dudes out there listening to this who, you know, eat frozen pizza two or three times a week. And uh, nothing wrong with that. That was my diet once upon a time. But if you want to eat better and you don't want to spend a ton of money doing it, Blue Apron uh, really is the way to go. Uh, This company, they're involved in partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. Uh, So you're getting food that's been, you know, made the right way. And uh, it's going to taste great. You know, and, I've, and I've been using Blue Apron for a long time. And, uh, you know, even being, you know, like a, a dad, you know, in, in, in the course of your day, you know, if you have kids, you know, it, it can be hard at dinner time to, to be creative and to have tasty meals. Um, and Blue Apron really does, uh, really makes that a lot easier. You know, some of the upcoming meals that they have. Uh, they're, they're going to be offering includes salmon piccata with orso and broccoli, pr- pork chops and miso butter with bok choy and marinated apple, vegetable chili and baked sweet potatoes, spicy shrimp coconut curry with cabbage and rice. You know, some of these things are so amazing that I'm probably mispronouncing it. I mean, it, it just tastes amazing. This is stuff you'd order in a restaurant, but you can have it um, at your house. Now, as if the promise of delicious food wasn't enough for you. I'm going to offer you a great deal to further entice you to try Blue Apron. Um, if you just check out this menu, this week's menu, and you can get your first three meals for free with free shipping if you go to blueapron.com/celebration. Again, that's blueapron.com/celebration. You will get three meals for free shipped to your house for free. I mean, there's there's really no reason not to try this at this point. And by the way, if you do use this promo code. Blue Apron will know that you listen to this podcast. So the more people that try this promo code, you know, the more likely they are to continue to support us. So, you know, if I can even add that on top of it, I think there's really no reason not to try this. So again, that's blueapron.com slash celebration. Get your free meals, eat well, support the podcast. Everybody wins. All right. So, of course, the Vitalogyology series presented by Celebration Rock, there's only one place where it can begin, and that is with the first Pearl Jam record, 10. And uh, before uh, I bring out our guests for this episode, I want to sort of set the table uh, for the discussion about this album for a bit, because I think that this is a very interesting record in the history of Pearl Jam. There's there's a duality to 10. Uh, On one hand, it's easily the most popular album that Pearl Jam ever made. 
It went platinum 13 times. Um, the songs, the big hits off this record are still played on the radio every single day. Um, if you were to talk to sort of the average rock fan, just a casual listener, the Pearl Jam songs that they know are most likely from this record. Jeremy, Alive, Even Flow, Even Black, which wasn't officially a single, but it's still one of those Pearl Jam songs that has sort of crossed over and has a universal sort of appeal to it. So in the minds of, I would say, most people, when you say Pearl Jam, this is the record that they think of. So that's true on one hand. On the other hand, I think you could make a case that starting in, say, 1993 or so, Pearl Jam conducted its career in a way that was a reaction, essentially, to the success of this record. And also, in a way, to the sound of this record. Um, certainly, the records that Pearl Jam made immediately after 10 are sort of running in the opposite direction of how radio-friendly 10 is and how sort of easily accessible it is. Um, it should also be noted, however, that Pearl Jam has occasionally tried to make albums like 10 or, or that were as sort of radio-friendly as 10. So they've kind of returned to this and they've run away from it. Um, but uh, Pearl Jam, when they made this record, they weren't really the band that they were going to become when they became this successful. Uh, I think one thing that's undersold a little bit with 10 is the fact that like, Pearl Jam wasn't even a band that long when this record came out. Um, in order to illustrate this, I, I want to briefly kind of go over the timeline of Pearl Jam's early career. Now, their first rehearsal occurred on October 13th, 1990. And by the way, it's amazing that we know these dates, but this is a band, I think, they've, they've been shown to know about their history or to care about their history. Um, but anyway, the Pearl Jam, they play their first rehearsal on October 13th. And sort of right before this, uh, you know, there's that famous story about how Stone Gossard, Mike McCready, and Jeff Ament, with the assistance of Matt Cameron, who be later became Pearl Jam's drummer, but at the time was in Soundgarden, they record this demo. And the demo somehow gets in the hands of Eddie Vedder, who's living in San Diego. And Eddie Vedder hears these songs, he goes surfing, and the next day he writes Alive and Once, you know, two of the most iconic Pearl Jam songs ever, along with a bunch of other songs, including my personal favorite Pearl Jam B-side, or one of my favorites anyway, which is Footsteps. So this is in September of 1990, and, you know, the guys in what will become Pearl Jam, they hear what Eddie Vedder's done and they basically say, holy shit, this is going to be the most iconic frontman of the 1990s. We have to get him up to Seattle immediately. So Eddie Vedder goes up to Seattle. This is, you know, this is October 13th, 1990, and they, and they have their first rehearsal. And within a week, they write 11 songs. And, I, and on October 22nd, 1990, they play their first show under the name Mookie Blaylock. Okay, so this is October of 1990. Pearl Jam is just starting to bud at this point. Ten comes out about ten months later in, on August 27th, 1991. And this is also a wild thing about Ten. A few weeks before Ten came out, Metallica released their self-titled record, also known as the Black Album. A few weeks after Ten comes out, Guns N' Roses puts out Usually Illusion 1 and 2, 
And then the week after that, Nirvana puts out Nevermind. So in the course of about a month and a half, you have five of the most iconic rock records of the 90s coming out. And at that time, Pearl Jam was definitely the underdog out of that group. I mean, even Nirvana had Bleach before Nevermind came out. And so there was a lot of buzz about Nirvana. All that people knew about Pearl Jam was that two of the guys, Stone Gossard and Jeff Amitt, used to be in this band called Mother Love Bone, uh, which was this sort of 70s-style arena rock band with some glam metal shadings led by a guy named Andrew Wood, who uh, was a great front man, even though Mother Love Bone wasn't really a great band. Like, he was a great front man in sort of like a Freddie Mercury, Robert Plant mold. Uh, and unfortunately, he didn't become famous until after he died. He died of a heroin overdose in the spring of 1990. And after that, that's when Stone Gossard started writing the songs that became sort of the foundation of 10. So you have one band that falls apart. You have another band that sort of comes together very quickly. And then you have this record that comes out, 10, in August of 1991. Um... The first single from 10 was Alive, which did okay. The next single was, a, was Even Flow, which I don't have any data to confirm this, but my memory is that the video for Even Flow was played approximately 80 times a day on MTV in the like winter and spring of 1992. So that becomes a pretty big song. Then that summer, Pearl Jam plays on the Lollapalooza tour. Not as a headliner, but just as a support act. But they start to get a lot of buzz from that because this is like the first time that people, that many people get to see Pearl Jam play live. Also at this time, a record by a band called Temple of the Dog, which was a super group made up of members of Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. Their record, which came out in the spring of 91, before 10 came out, that gets a second wind. The record company decides to re-release the single for Hunger Strike. Uh, in that summer and Eddie Vedder is a featured part of that song he's that's the only song that he sings on the, on the Temple of the Dog record but now you have another Eddie Vedder sort of showcase on MTV so that helps Pearl Jam a lot and then finally in September of 1992 the video for Jeremy comes out and again this is about a little under two years after Pearl Jam had their first rehearsal okay that's when the video for Jeremy comes out and at that point, 10 goes nuclear. And they are, if not the biggest band in the world, certainly the, the, the biggest young band in the world, on their way to becoming the biggest band in the world. So again, you have a band that in many ways had done its most iconic work almost immediately after they got together. <laughs> and, you know, looking at... 10 versus the rest of Pearl Jam's career, you know, the, the obvious separation is that in the early going, you know, Stone Gossard was the general of this band. And over the next couple records, that was going to change and it was going to become Eddie Vedder's band. Um, and that's something that we're going to be talking about a lot on subsequent episodes. But getting back to 10, you know, when I was asking people to, to be guests on uh, you know, for this series, it was very easy to find people to find you know to talk about verses and vitology and no code and even yield. But ten was a little more difficult, even though it's the most famous record Pearl Jam made. And I wonder again if 
you know, it's weird to say this about 10, but in a way, I feel like it's underrated. Maybe because it's so ubiquitous. Maybe because this was the record that was blamed for spawning so many, many crappy bands. <laughs> you know, it's sort of the neo-grunge movement was created by 10, unwittingly. Um, also, the sound of this record is sort of dated. Um, even the band members themselves, you know, in 2009, they re-released the record with a new mix because they didn't like how the original record sounded. Um, so there's always been mixed emotions about 10. Um, but I think if you go back to it and you don't let the baggage get in the way, uh, this really is a pretty incredible record. Um, uh, it's certainly the most anthemic and most immediate record that Pearl Jam ever made. Um, and I don't know, it was fun diving into it. Um, so the guests on this episode, the people who are going to help me sort of dissect 10. First, I have Brian Hyatt. Uh, he's a journalist from Rolling Stone. He's been on this podcast before. And I had him on because, first of all, he was a Pearl Jam fan in the 90s. And then he actually got to know Pearl Jam as a journalist. He wrote a cover story about Pearl Jam in 2006. He interviewed them again when 10 was re-released. So he got a lot of, in a lot of interesting insights from the band uh, on, about how they feel about this record and sort of their early, early period. So we talked a lot about Brian with that. Um, after Brian, a little bit later in this episode, um, I talked to Mark Pellington who is one of the greatest music video directors of all time. And he directed the video for Jeremy. Uh, and I wanted to delve into Jeremy because that really is a pivotal moment in Pearl Jam history. Uh, it changed the band's career. It's the most famous video that they ever made. And for a long time, it was the last video that they made. So we got a lot of interesting uh, tidbits from Mark about the making of that video and, and the impact on the band. So that will be great. But before we get to that, let's talk with Brian Hyatt of Rolling Stone. Brian, I wanted to interview you because I know you've, you've, you've done stories on Pearl Jam. Uh, you've interviewed Eddie Vedder a bunch of times. Like, How many times have you interviewed those guys, would you say? Well, I think my, uh, you know, including phone interviews, it's a bunch of times. Um, you know, in, in, in person, you know, and I've seen them a few times, but I think there were two kind of biggish in-person occasions. The first was, it was actually my very first cover story for Rolling Stone, uh, was in, I believe, in 2006. Yeah. Um, it was on Pearl Jam. Um, and it was actually a kind of, the band's relationship with Rolling Stone had gotten a little rocky in the wake of the sort of Eddie Vedder uncovered story that the magazine did in like 1998. I remember that. Um, it, and it was kind of funny for me as someone who had been a, just a reader of Rolling Stone in 1998 to be part of trying to uh, repair that relationship. Well, I, I just remember, doesn't that story open with him ordering Domino's pizza or something? That, that's my memory of this. My story? No, no, uh, no, no, the 98 oh, story. Like, oh, possibly. The 98 story, if I'm getting the year right, was a write-around, and it was kind of like the real Eddie Vedder. Yeah, it was about him like being like a recluse and kind of yeah, like... Yeah, and I think a lot of it was... I think there was an effort to... It had an angle where it was sort of like, oh, he wasn't really unpopular in high school, you know, that kind of thing, <laughs> right. you know, and um, and I may have gotten the year wrong. It may have been 96 or 97. I don't know. But um, it was they were not happy about that. And it, it 
it's one of those things that kind of just seemed like an artifact of the times because they were trying to retreat from the spotlight and the spotlight was still finding them and we were just you know part of that at the at that time um but the, by the time i got with them they were a very different band and ed was in a very different place yeah i read your story and it's a great story like Thanks. but but like did they needle you at all like did eddie go hey hey man what's the deal with the right around no, they actually. So part of the thing was, um, I think the, I think the writer they wanted was Cameron Crowe, <laughs> who, had, <laughs> who had written, who had written, who had actually written a great one of his, you know, great return. He had written a, a cover story about the Circa Verses for Rolling Stone, and that was, you know, a rare example of sort of a '90s Cameron. Obviously, he was already making movies. He already yeah. made singles. Um, he was deep into his movie career, but. So he was not available. Uh, he was busy making Vanilla Sky or whatever it was <laughs> at the time. Um, he was like, I actually make money for making movies. And uh, and I think they liked the idea of it being, if they couldn't have Cameron Crowe, of it being someone's first cover story for Rolling Stone. Oh. Uh, they were very aware of that because I think they felt, which is funny because I was already, I was not 16 by any means. <laughs> so... It, you know, I was actually a fairly seasoned journalist. I just was new at Rolling Stone. Yeah. So, but it did have a way of me making, of making me feel more like a kid, even though I was far from it already, because I was treated that they, they, there was something about that. They were very aware of that. So yeah, no, they knew I was pretty new at Rolling Stone. You know what I mean? So they weren't going to blame me for that. And it's actually, it's actually a thing I've experienced a few times. I mean, like you know, when I, when a week after I started, I, I somehow had Brian May on the phone. And he said, oh, how long has it been working in Rolling Stone? I said, like, one week. And he was so relieved because he hates everyone from the 70s, you know. <laughs> so there's, there's, a, there's, a certain, um, there's a certain advantage in, in that starting fresh. But anyway, yes, yeah. they, were, they were very cool, and it was, and it was, it was a, a pretty special experience. And, um, and kind of, for me, the culmination of my turning around to become a Pearl Jam fan, which had already started, for me, that started late. I became a Pearl Jam fan around the time of Yield, to be honest. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, a fan. Because before that, I was a skeptic who liked them, but always kind of, they, I, I was, I was, kind of hanging on to the idea that you know Nirvana was better. You know what I mean? Which, which is, you know, I think they would, even they would acknowledge was in certain senses true, but also just kind of an unfair way of looking at it. Right. Um, and so then I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a, a, a somewhat late convert uh, Pearl Jam fan, uh, but, but definitely M1. <laughs> yeah, because I, you know, cause I wanted to talk to you about Ten, which yeah. you know, which obviously the first record, the big record, and I know that you you interviewed those guys around the time that the reissue came out in 2009, where they remixed the record, and they talked about that uh, process with you. I mean, before we talk about that, like, when was the last time you listened to Ten? Well, I, you know, probably uh, sometime in the last couple of years, for sure. I was going to listen to it for this, but then, then, then we kind of decided to go in with, with on memory alone. But I, <laughs> you know, I, I listened to the, um, I listened to the remix sometime in the last couple of years. You know, uh, yeah. for sure, I, I, it, maybe even in the last year. Um, and uh, and it, it's an interesting we can get into that, but I think it's it's very interesting to listen to the remix because what I think it gradually does is erase the memory of the original in this weird kind of like Star Wars, you know, Han Greedo shooting first kind of thing. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I think it's a kind of a fascinating phenomenon. But anyway. Yeah, I mean, and again, like you did this story in 2009 when that, uh, when that uh, remix version by Brendan O'Brien came out. And I thought it was interesting because there's a quote in there, to, uh, like, like Jeff 
Is it Jeff Amet or Jeff Amet? Um, I believe it's Amet. Amet. Okay, because this is an ongoing controversy in this podcast, and uh, we've been recording these out of order. So, like, later on in this uh, podcast series, you're going to hear me ask this question again, probably. But it's I'm going of... to, while we're on the phone, I'm going to email my colleague Andy Green, <laughs> who recently got... I, I did at one point clarify this, just like I, you know, I, I do know it's Neil Peart. That much I've, I've, yeah. I've established 100%. See, I, um, I kind of want this to be a running joke in this series that we can't uh, so say you, his you, name right. So you don't, you don't want me to, do you want me to, to settle it forever? <laughs> no, no, email him and uh, yeah. we'll see what he says. But yeah. like, I thought there was an interesting quote in there where he was talking about how like almost immediately after 10 came out, he wanted it to be remixed because like when you listen to the original version, um, it's funny because I remember hearing that record at the time, you know, when I was 13, 14 years old and thinking like, wow, Pearl Jam is this band from the underground and they're totally different from sort of the, you know, the hair metal bands that were, that were big at the time, like the Poisons and the Def Leppards. And uh, it just seemed like this sort of gritty raw record. And you listen to it now, of course, and it sounds like an 80s record. It's very reverb heavy, yeah. um, you know, very kind of tinny sounding. Um, I mean, the songs are so good that I think it still translates, but it definitely sounds dated in a way that I think a record like Verses or Vitology, those records don't sound as dated to me uh, in the way that 10 does. Um, and, but it's interesting that they felt that way almost immediately when that record was made. Well, I think it's it's probably not all that different from how Nirvana felt about Nevermind, um, right. which also it's also easy to forget that August 1991 is like practically still the 80s. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. like it, there's it, it's you know like like Bruce Springsteen's Human Touch came out like a little bit you know somewhere around there and like maybe a few months the next year and it's like that still sounds like an 80s record you know like there were all the Def Leppard the, the Def Leppard uh, whatever the, that Def Leppard record that came out that was still an 80s so it's like no one like held up a sign like you're in the 90s they were making the 90s you know what I mean <laughs> so it's it's a, you know what I mean it's like this very funny thing it's like it, it, the, the decades blur together and the sounds were establishing themselves you know yeah, absolutely I mean I, I was talking about this uh, with with my producer Derek uh, but before I got on with you you know I, uh, this morning I was watching the video for Alive right know, which was the first video Pearl Jam ever made and uh, it's a unique video in that it's a performance clip but they're actually playing live it's not they're not lip syncing um, but when you watch that video and you see like the sort of early version of Pearl Jam and you look at like Mike McCready, for instance, who like is basically dressed like Richie Sambora. You know, like he has like the floppy hat. He has like this billowy <laughs> shirt on. You know, like a Stevie Ray Vaughan. You know, kind of like a he looks like a old school kind of guitar hero looking guy. Yeah, and, that's because he, he yeah he was uh, yeah and he came and he from that major Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah, yeah exactly. totally. And then you have Jeff Amet. He takes his shirt off at one point. He's got the floppy hats, of course. That's very early '90s Jeff Amet, and um, you know. You can see, like as you were talking about that, it was that transition from the 80s to the 90s. It wasn't like a clean break. You could still, you know, because obviously the members of Pearl Jam, they they were from Mother Love Bone. Mother Love Bone was sort of a thinking man's glam band, but they had a lot of glam-like tendencies. Uh, you know, they, they looked more like Poison than they didn't. Uh, so they were smarter, <laughs> but like had a lot of those tendencies. But like then you look at Eddie Vedder, and Eddie Vedder... Um, you can really see how he was the difference at that time as far as differentiating Pearl Jam from maybe the previous generation's bands. Like, 
Well, he was like a skater surfer guy. Right. He was a surfer, you know, and that was that was his thing. He was like a punk surfer, and that was his look, you know. Right. A lot of shorts. There were a lot of shorts going on. Well, and, al- <laughs> and also, like, you know, he he was a very good-looking guy. He had a great voice, but he also had, I think, like a Michael Stipe element to him, like more of that kind of side where he was shy. You know, there was an introspective kind of thing to him. Um, you know, he was definitely, he had that Michael Stipe thing where Michael Stipe made you look at him kind of like, like Michael Stipe could go into himself and it somehow made him more charismatic, you know, like he could get your attention without trying to. And I think better had the same thing. He did, but, it, but, but he was so, so much more extroverted on stage. Right. Know? So, I, I, although there was, you know, it's, there's a real, it, it's such a cliche, but there was a real duality because... There, there was that like look. It, it really was a look at me, don't look at me kind of thing. I think he was very conflicted. Um, and but I mean, what I what I did watch, I recently watched a little bit of their Unplugged, which is you know Ten Era, and my God, the intensity of Eddie Vedder. Right. And I I mean he's you know he has like this backwards hat. He looks a little bit like like unintentionally like uh, Fred Durst, you know, like a pre Fred <laughs> Durst thing because it's like a you know it's that kind of cap backwards, which is so incongruous, but. Like when he performs, I mean, like the, you know, it's it, it wasn't like a subtle thing that him and Kurt were superstars. They were just, you know, they, as you said, I mean, and it and it is, I, I I will say an under remarked upon thing, at least among dudes, that both him and Kurt like amazing looking guys. Like right. they look like stars. They look like movie stars. You know, well, they were they were, and that's you know. <laughs> Well, that's always the thing. Like when people talk about the '90s and they talk about how, like, it was so like sort of the the politics of alt rock was very anti rock star, and they talk of, and they sort of blame '90s bands for killing rock stars, but they spawned a lot of great rock stars, like you know, Cobain, Vetter, Trent Reznor. I mean, just people that that dude, looked dude. really good and like Spin Doctors, dude, <laughs> Spin Doctors guy, um, Adam Duritz, Chris Byrne. Um, um, uh, you know. <laughs> Hey, listen. I, you know, I, I will, I will defend Adam Darce as a whole. Oh, me too. Oh my God. You know, the next podcast series will be about Counting Crows, <laughs> and I, I say that only half jokingly. But uh, you know, it, it, it's. I will say that that a, a pocketful of kryptonite came out one week before ten. Right. <laughs> and, and and in a way, like at least in nearly going. Neck and neck, if not spin doctors ahead of Pearl Jam in terms of popularity. Yes, they they they, they did better faster than. <laughs> But you know, in the long run, not quite a draw. But at the t- at the time, they were uh, you know they were searching. Well, and you know, it's interesting. You you mentioned your your first cover story from 2006, being on Pearl Jam, and that was around the time of the Avocado record. Yeah, I guess the self titled Avocado record. But you know, you you talked a lot in that story about the band's history, and you know, at that point, they were 15 years removed from 10, and it was interesting, kind of getting some perspective there. Actually, I think this is from your other story that you did in 2009, but I thought it was interesting when Stone Gossard was talking about when he listens to 10, he feels that it's uh, that it seems unrealized, you know, that, and I think that's an interesting aspect to 10, because in one respect, it is clearly the biggest record that Pearl Jam ever did, and yet at the same time, they were still in the process of becoming who they were going to be. I mean, I, I, was, I, I was putting together a timeline before I, I was talking to you, and you know, Pearl Jam, they played their first show as Mookie Blaylock in October of 1990. Ten is released in August of 1991, so less than a year later. And then 
in September of 1992, you know, which is about two years after their first show, the video for Jeremy comes out and basically sets that band on fire. You know, <laughs> after that, um, you know, I think Nirvana was still big. Pearl Jam was gaining on them. But after Jeremy, my memory anyway, is that Pearl Jam took over at that point and was just ginormous. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, and by the way, I've confirmed that it's Jeff Ament, uh, which is what I thought, yeah. Jeff Ament, okay, well, yeah. I, I know for sure we have mispronounced it. Jo- I've ruined your joke. Well, uh, no, not really, yeah. because people will listen later, and I've uh, I've mispronounced it throughout this podcast, so it'll <laughs> it'll be good. It'll be a good drinking game for <laughs> so, people. So the reason I, you know, it was Andy and someone else, what happens is sometimes these people will call you on the phone and be like, hey, it's Jeff Ament, and you're like, oh. <laughs> 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 That's the best way to solve the, the problem. Exactly. So, I, sorry, where were you? I was just saying that, I mean, you really have, you know, you have a band that plays their first show in October of 1990, and then two years later, basically, they're like the biggest band, the new, the biggest new band anyway in the world. Yeah, um, they were much, they were much, much bigger than Nirvana in the moment. Like, the, right. that is, it, it, history started being rewritten a little bit the moment that, that Kurt was gone. But, uh, my God, Proton were much bigger than Nirvana. But like they, but it's interesting that they, you know, because like even Nirvana had a warm up to Nevermind. I mean, they played right. Bleach and they were touring. Pearl Jam really did not have um, a warm up, and, and and you know, again, ten. It's this huge record in their history, but it is also in a way not totally representative of the band they became. I mean, you know, Stone Gossard wrote a lot of the songs on 10. You know, he was much more of the dominant force. Yeah. And it wasn't until later that Eddie Vedder kind of took the band over and put them in a different direction. Yes. Well, you know, I I think one of the things that I'm sort of obsessed with on 10 that I always talk about uh, when I talk about the record is is the funkiness. And one of the... (laughs) that like sort of I mean quote unquote the funkiness you know like like you know it's not George Clinton wouldn't think it was funky but you know by compared to especially where Pearl Jam went later there's this like groove thing going on that entirely disappeared from the band's sound eventually well and, and yeah and, and we, then and we, yeah. and we talk about you know and we'll be talking about this in other episodes coming yeah. forward but there is a disreputable. Chili Peppers gene in the early Pearl Jam records. I mean, I'm in, you know, I don't know how you feel about the Chili yes, Peppers, but like absolutely. It, but if you, one of the things I was most um, happy about was when I did that the Ten story specifically. I wanted to understand where the funk thing came from. Yeah, and, and Gossard told me, which is Jane's Addiction. Right. <laughs> that was a that it was basically they wanted to sound like Jane's Addiction. So the quote was, "I like propulsion. I like rhythm. I wanted people jumping up and down." And then he mentions that one. It can be kind of like Achilles' last stand or anything moving towards that heavy, funky, grooving, chaotic thing. And yes, I'm sure there was an element of, of the peppers in there as, as well. I mean, that, because that's what, okay, so the, because basically he was trying to, they were trying to be something that already existed, which was like an alternative band. And before, like, quote unquote, and alternative was in many ways represented by the Chili Peppers and James Addiction. Right. <laughs> you know? Like, that was, like, what it was. So it was like, you know, I, I was about to start, like, uh, doing Anthony Kiedis. But, yeah, there's a little bit of that. And, you know, and, and I think it's significant that in the demo, there's weird, like, spoken word stuff that, that, that Ed was trying to do on Once, which probably, yeah, does 
kind of harken back to uh, to the Chili Peppers for sure. Well, yeah, and the, the Jane's Addiction thing I think is interesting. They are in a way a lost band in rock history because, and you know, like I always think of Dave Navarro as being sort of like the biggest lost opportunity in rock history. Because like if you listen to those early Jane's Addiction <laughs> records, oh man, there's, there's a there's a lot of competition there. But yeah, but so, at but, least yeah. of that era yeah. of the alt yeah. era, because he uh-huh. was he could have been Jimmy Page, you know, like like on Nothing Shocking and Ritual Dilo Habitual, like especially the second side of that record, he's amazing. And then, you know, now we think of him having like the pierced nipples and you know with Carmen <laughs> Electra. I mean, that's like what we think of it, of, of him now. But um, I remember there was a story too about like. I think it was Jeff Amet when he was still in Green River seeing Jane's Addiction, and he was with Mark Arm, who went on to form Mud Honey. And Jeff Amet thought like Jane's Addiction was like the greatest band he'd ever seen, and like Mark Arm thought they were ridiculous. And at that <laughs> point, Amet knew that they had to break up because you know it was like Jane's Addiction was sort of like the pivotal difference between them, like and how they saw what rock and roll should be. Well, you know, I, I think there's a lot. One of the things is that Jane's Addiction encompassed more classic rock and Zeppelin into their sound, which, so it was sort of a backdoor by which Pearl Jam kind of like became more classic rocky than, uh, you know, than say Nirvana, you know, it's just, and, you know, in in part, the other reason was of course the inclusion of, of Mike McCready, as you said, he was a, you know, he's a guy who wanted to be a Hendrix, Steve Ray Vaughan style soloist, and that was, um, and I think that was a lot of what made Pearl Jam super accessible to like classic rock schooled kids, of whom there were lots in the early '90s. You know, right? When I always feel like that is the sweet spot with Pearl Jam, where they can, you know, be a part of that continuum of classic rock while also having a little bit of distance from it. You know, like where you know, because I feel like at, at times, like on some of the early Pearl Jam records. It's like Eddie Vedder's trying to sing like a punk singer, and it's yeah. like you're not a punk singer. You're you're Roger Daltrey, you know, and like you should embrace that. But at well, the same he's time, he's a little I, of both, I think. Yeah, you know, like a little bit of Joe Strummer and a little bit of uh, Roger Daltrey. Yeah, I think you know, and and well, then the the funny thing to me is the the influence that could not be named on Eddie Vedder in 1991 because it was deeply unfashionable was Springsteen. Right. He was he was enough of a big Springsteen fan that there is you may or may not know this there is floating out there. Uh, I think it's One Step Up. It's a song from Tunnel of Love. I'm pretty sure it's One Step Up. It's on YouTube. Eddie Vedder sat in the studio before he was in Pearl Jam and recreated the the every bit of the instrumentation on the uh, Springsteen version. Oh, yeah, there's One Step Up. Uh, and, you know, the drum machines, the synths, everything. Oh, wow. He did, like, a demo of... So that's how hardcore a, a Springsteen fan he was. Yeah, uh, and I love that Vedder loves Tunnel of Love because yeah, I love Tunnel was, of Love, and he's that, that shows how he committed he is to Springsteen. Yes, yeah, so so it was, <laughs> but at the time he was very listen. He was very aware. He talked about Fugazi. He did right. not talk about Springsteen because he was smart. He knew, like you know, like, and he and. Did he love Fugazi? Absolutely. Did he love Sonic Youth? Yes, he loves Sonic Youth, and he's very close with those people. So he's just a guy. One, one. I think the most generous and maybe accurate way to look at Ed is he's someone who secretly recognized early on what everyone realizes now is like, you know, rock music. Like there really isn't that much of a line between even Springsteen and Sonic Youth. If you're playing a guitar and and, and singing, I mean, rock is rock. All this stuff. Now that rock is, we, we can argue about this another time, perhaps very soon. Now that rock is 
dead and or just not in the cultural mainstream. I think, to me, it's clearer than ever that these, like, little walls between, like, ACDC and Sonic Youth or whatever, like, actually are, are, are BS. Like, it's, right. it's, it's all just little stylistic and cultural tweaks, but it's, it's all pretty much just rock, you know? And, and I, it's possible that he, he was just an early person who really recognized that, you know, that, there, that you could like all of this, you know? Yeah, although, again, like, at the time... You know, he was very self-conscious about, I think, Pearl Jam's success, especially since it was so quick. For for sure. For sure, yes. And, like, yeah, I mean, you said yourself that at the time you were more of a Nirvana guy. I mean, was it because of the sort of scene politics of the early 90s? I mean, were you (laughs) kind of... I wasn't wasn't cool enough to be involved in any scene politics whatsoever. (laughs) Or, like, the alt-rock politics, you know, (laughs) because I had the same thing. I was a Nirvana fan. I did not... I, I always felt like I was a closet Pearl Jam fan. Like I think I always liked Ten, but I couldn't admit it because I was so into loving Nirvana, and I felt like I had to choose one or the other. So I chose Nirvana, even though in a way I think Pearl Jam, their sort of aesthetic approach is, was probably more of my ideal because of that thing you're talking about, where they really were a band that were they were like a bridge between the underground and arena rock. You know, that yeah. they, they were able to kind of be a big 70s style band while also kind of conducting themselves in the way that like a band like Fugazi, w- you know, conducted themselves. Like, I think Pearl Jam was able to do that on an arena level, or at least as much as you can do that when you're that big. Yeah, I think I came from very much the same place that you did. And, and even to the, the point with the point where aesthetically, at least with my my aesthetic such as it was when I was a kid. <laughs> From the point of view of my somewhat stunted aesthetic sense at that age, actually, yeah, the, the, yes, exactly. Pearl Jam actually theoretically should have fit in more. But yeah, you know what it was? It was like they were too popular, and I wasn't. Right. I, I didn't have like a big indie thing. It was more like it was more like every asshole liked them. I hope I can curse on this. <laughs> no, uh, no, no, you can. Yes, you can. Okay, okay. And, you know, like it was more like that, and it's more like. You know, it's more like I think what bothered me was what bothered them. Actually, it was like every, you know, like how Kurt, Kurt would, you know, like the infamous insecticide liner notes, where it's like, you know, jocks and homophobes, like, please stay out of my shows, like that whole thing. Like it's like if you were in school and you know when when Pearl Jam came out, it's like every idiot who didn't know anything <laughs> about music was so excited about verses coming out that of course I like. Like, I remember when they went on, you're hitting a nerve, I never talk about this stuff, but, but like, I remember, I'm like re-inhabiting my, my uh, young self here, but, you know, it was like, <laughs> I remember when they, when Neil Young played with them on the VMA, right? and like, I had roommates and stuff, they didn't really know who Neil Young was, and like, that drove me bonkers, you know what I mean? I couldn't, <laughs> like, of course, looking back, like, why did I care, I really should have been focused on something else, like partying or something, or doing my homework, but, um, the, uh, <laughs> either one would have been good, um, but, um, <laughs> You know, it was it was very irksome to me. It was like people who didn't like music like them, right. and I and that was the problem. But the problem, but then of course, looking back, the reason that people who didn't like music like them is because they were so good, right? <laughs> and they were good, of, you know. That's and, part of what it is, and you know, and, and this gets lost in the sands of history. But they really were a pop band. I mean, they were a band that little kids liked, and yeah. I, and I was you know I was pretty young, you know, I when these records were big, like when. 10 came out i was uh like in the eighth grade and by the time versus came out then it was like kind of going into high school but they were the biggest band and 
you know, you're never going to be the coolest band if you're appealing to like middle schoolers, but <laughs> that's how you become ginormous. Right. Um, and, and that's what they were, you know, uh, I mentioned the Jeremy video earlier, which I think was really when they reached critical mass. Cause that video was so big and Eddie Vedder, I think was so great in it. Uh, yeah. even though it's always interesting when, you know, we talk about Eddie Vedder kind of eventually being so anti music video, but when you watch the Jeremy video, I mean, he makes the video. And right. if, if you think of being in a video as acting, which in a way it is, it's like a great performance. It's like Daniel Day Lewis level, but of rock. You know, he's like the he's like the Daniel Day Lewis rock frontman in that video. It's like very powerful. Um, I'm, I'm going to quote for. I, I actually just remembered. I once wrote. I can't remember what the context was, but it was just like a college newspaper piece. And somebody pointed. I, I, I think I made a good point. <laughs> I just remember, which is, a, it's a interesting to compare that to the Hot for Teacher video, in which the nerd, <laughs> in which you're actually supposed to laugh at the nerd, right? Like you know what I mean, as opposed to sympathize with the kid. It, it's the it's it's a fascinating sort of transition. And I think my point was that's where there maybe was some real validity and power to the, the that alternative shift where it's like suddenly the out you know so suddenly you're you're transferring your sympathy you know yeah uh, I, I think that i think that that is worth a comparison you know yeah i mean i think like in the hot for, te- in the hot for teacher video it's about maybe tricking nerds into relating to david lee roth or thinking that they could be david lee roth whereas with eddie vedder he was saying no i understand who you are and i you know, I'm I'm, you know, I'm speaking to you. Although the interesting thing about Jeremy is that he sings it from the point of view of like someone who knows Jeremy. It's not right. it's not a first person song. I mean, it's a very kind of cleverly written song. I think maybe more than people give it credit for because it became this sort of overbearing alt rock anthem. But you know, there's no real chorus to it. You know, the bass is kind of the driving instrument in it. And, yeah. and just like the lyrical perspective in it, I think is interesting because like I always think of it as being a first person song about Jeremy, but it's actually his classmates singing about him. Um, it kind of makes me think of that uh, that police song. Um, uh, what's that song about? Like, uh, like you'll be sorry when I'm dead with all this guilt hanging on your head. What's what, what song? Is yeah, that? I mean, yeah, um, oh, right. Uh, it's, it's, I can't stand losing way, you. That song where it's. And, 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 and by the way, they they are they were big police fans too. Big yeah, police fans. that, that, um, that kind of idea, like I'm going to kill myself to make my, to make you feel bad about me. Like it kind of fits in that genre of rock song. It was, it was certainly very, you know, it's certainly emo. I mean, I I, I wonder. I always wonder whether I, I I don't know about the seemed a harmless little fuck, but we unleashed a lion, gnashed his teeth, and bit and bit the recess lady's breast. How could I forget? He hit me with a surprise left. I mean, I. I I don't know about that part. I still don't know. I think it's a little bit. <laughs> I think it's a little bit gauche or whatever. But but it it it, it, it works in, in in context. You know, well, I think well, the, I think the at home drawing pictures of mountaintops with him on top, lemon yellow sun, arms raised, and V. That part's really good. Well, <laughs> you know, I think Eddie Vedder though was actually willing to put himself in the place of an asshole in that song because it's yeah. like he's like he's not the sympathetic guy in there. But then, I don't know the way. He performs in the video, and and again, because like, I remember thinking about the video, and thinking about the actor who plays Jeremy, and, and and that being my memory. But then rewatching it, you really realize that Eddie Vedder is the sort of narrative thread in there, and like just the close-ups right. on his face. But it's also right. It's also like you realize. 
again, like as I was saying about the unplugged, what a compelling screen presence he is, and what a star. And and, you right. know, and one of the things that you did get, I guess, from both from the Rolling Stone right around, and frankly from the Kim Neely biography, which I know the band hates, um, <laughs> or or at least Ed hates, because it was you know. Um, uh, but but what you do get, you know, is Ed was a child star. I don't know if you you know or remember this. I mean, he was yeah. he was a child actor on, on local commercials and stuff, and he was he it was not like. Uh, an unknown thing from the age of like five that this kid was like a star. You know what I mean? So this is always, it's actually the same thing with Billy Joe Armstrong, by the way. It's like they may have like gone in this rock and roll direction, but actually from, you know, from a young age, people are like, oh, this, you know, this kid's a performer, this kid's going to be a star, this kid's going to be a movie star or something. You right. know, it's an interesting thing. And, and, and Ed just really, you know, he backed away from that. A guy who's so great on camera stayed away from camera, stayed away from videos for so long. So what you're saying is that he's like the thinking man's Macaulay Culkin. He's the well. He's more like he's more like it, it's more like there was he could have been a lot of things. You know what I right, mean? Right, right. Like, probably had he chosen to be an actor, uh, I don't have much doubt that that probably would have worked out too. Right. Yeah. yeah oh, you totally. Know, I, I think it's just some people, and the same thing with you know with Bill, Billy Joe, who's like some people are just stars are stars you know what i mean so and they transcend it transcends even the singing and the songwriting it's just the sheer not to be like simon cowell and say it factor but just the sheer charisma and and force of them and looks right uh as a person means that they're gonna be a star and they can't help it right yeah totally. <laughs> and they, they just have to choose their medium you know yeah uh, and that, that you know and that, that's true of like beyonce that's true of like a you know a, a lot of people who just have like that level and that and that happens to be by the way why people can some people can go so easily between like movies and music and stuff like that because it's just they just have that that force and that just wasn't like a quality we were allowed to like admit to or acknowledge in the alt world right right yeah absolutely yeah you just you wanted to look at him like you could watch that video 29 times a day because he had that kind of right and and, you know and there wasn't like it's part of why you know on the you know they were they were in the monoculture, you know, and, and it's, I think one of the things, there's so many things that are hard to explain about the olden days <laughs> of the 90s. And one, one of them, of course, is just how often, if you had a hit video, how often that thing was on and how often we would watch it over and over again. Right. You know, and, it, and it's not just them. It could be like the B-Girl video, which I may have seen like a thousand times uh, with Blind Melon, you know. Um, but yeah, even like videos you hated, you would see a million times. And... watch them again. So, I mean, it's like that's part of the, what, what the other reason is that they are an absolutely spectacular live band. But it's the other reason why, you know, Pearl Jam can, are still selling out arenas around the world is because, but, you know, like the entire generation was hypnotized in, <laughs> by MTV. Right, know? yeah, yeah. And, you know, and that's, the thing about Pearl Jam, I think that they're at a point now where they have a pretty devoted following who, you know, there's a segment of their audience where it is like a jam band audience where they will just buy tickets yeah. no matter where they are. But then, you know, if you're going to play Wrigley Field or Fenway Park, you are going to get a lot of people who never go to rock shows, but they bought 10 in 1992, and that's maybe one of the only CDs they still own or, you know, or one of the few bands that they still know. So they will go see Pearl Jam because of this record like Pearl Jam still eats off of this album all the time uh, you know I was thinking when I, when I when I was reading your your 2006 cover story I thought it was interesting you had a you had a quote in there from Mike McCready <laughs> where you asked him about you know Pearl Jam's decision to pull back in 
sort of this era, like how, you know, because they made Jeremy. Jeremy is the video of the year at the 1993 VMAs. Uh, you know, it, again, it's really the video that kind of helped kick them into the stratosphere. And I think McCready says, like, uh, when we pulled back, I was like, oh, man. Yeah. I was a bit bummed out because I wanted to keep doing it, keep doing videos. We had this chance. Let's take it. You know, let's not blow it. And then he goes on to say that, well, it was probably a good thing that we didn't do it in the long run because we might have gotten burned out. But it is interesting to kind of see that already at that point, Eddie Vedder had taken over and was dictating band decisions, even though the rest of the band, I think, was maybe not as uncomfortable with being huge as he was at that time. Yeah, no, you know, and, and you know, I used to think, even maybe when I wrote that story, that they were wrong to do that, that that was bad for their career, or that it was just bad for rock or whatever. I, I think it may have been one of the smartest moves in rock history. They would not still be together right. if they had just kept keep if they had just kept going for it. I, you know, I, I think I think it was you know, and you also have to put into context a bunch of things. You have to put into, I mean, you know, you have to put Kurt's suicide in there. Right. You know, I mean, you know, you just have to. They were up. I mean, that's one of the things that I think I was able to talk to them about and to talk to Ed about in 2006 is just that crazy feeling where it's like he and Kurt were supposed to, God knows what, save the world or something, you know, and 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 then. Then Kurt killed himself, and then it's just him. And he's already—he is himself a, you know, like a—I wouldn't say a psychologically fragile individual, but someone with a lot of conflicts and a lot of stuff going on. And he, now he's just supposed to like be up there on the on the mountaintop, like you know, it's almost, you know, extremely hyperbolic, but it's sort of like Dylan going into hiding around Woodstock. Like no one wants that pressure, you know. And yeah. It's just like 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 get it in my head, man. You know. So it's just like well, and he had stalkers lot. at that. You know, there was yeah. that story about the woman who like drove her car into his. The wall outside of his it, house, like at fifty miles an hour, and the you, the, the 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 stalker thing um, was a very big deal. He had a, he had a very bad stalker, um, and it I, it really got in his head, you know. And it's just like, why am I putting myself out there so some lady can like be trying to kill me all the time? You know what I mean? And and I think that's the kind of thing it's very hard to for people to get their heads around and relate to. But it's. It, it, I think it was. It, it seemed to have really affected the sort of <laughs> the psychic direction of of, of uh, Ed at that time. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's crazy. I mean, again, I think it's just hard to articulate how famous they were at that time. Um, and, uh, yeah. and, and but it isn't. You know. But you know that decision to pull back. I think if you look at you know arguably the two biggest bands of the 90s that have continued to have a career that people still will go see and I think have a lot of you know cachet it would be Pearl Jam and it would be Radiohead and they kind of both did the same thing I mean Radiohead around the time of OK Computer could have very easily put out another record like that that was even bigger sounding and was more of a even more of a stadium rock record and they consciously pulled back as well. I think it's a very interesting kind of reaction to fame that's unique to bands of that era. That that that's sort of like because it was always kind of a given. I think that you have to go to the next level, and that was the beginning of bands saying, uh, "No, we don't." And I, I think it is prescient because the music industry changed so much. Uh, obviously, after the '90s, where. It wasn't even possible, I think, for, you know, I mean, the difference between now and when Pearl Jam was huge is that there was an MTV that could play your video a million times a day. And there was also, you know, rock radio stations that were much more robust about playing new bands. 
Oh yeah, and, and, and that's <laughs> all changed. To say the least. To say the least. Yeah, and, it was like a, a night and day situation. Yes. And so, uh, without those, you know, as good as Pearl Jam was, I don't think without the, those circumstances, they, they they would have been able to be as big as they were. Um, so I think, in a way, yeah, there is something kind of prescient about saying, you know, that we're going to have more of a 21st century way of operating, where, you know, because like the mass culture is so fragmented. Let's just cultivate an audience and, you know, become a great live band and we'll do records when we want to, but that's not going to be the focus of what we do necessarily. Well, certainly at least, yeah, certainly at least like radio hits and stuff weren't. But, you know, it's weird because then, you know, like on Yield, uh, you know, I mean, there were all sorts of, they had big radio hits. Um, like Last Kiss, <laughs> that was an enormous <laughs> song. That wasn't on Yo, but that was, you know, like like they had um, they had radio hits later than we sort of remember them having radio hits. But yes, they they definitely backed off from, you know, and I, I, I they backed off from from pop melody, which is too bad. You know, the same way that that Ed is so good on camera, I think also like something like Better Man, which of course he wrote well before Pearl Jam, uh, and had been a you know. A staple of you know one of his previous bands. Um, that's where like there's the infamous video of him being like, "There's a party at my house tonight and every night." You know, the, you know about that? There's like a <laughs> right, right. So like, which, which everyone used as like, "Oh, it's, Eddie Vedder's pretending to be this tortured guy." You know, he used to be party guy, but maybe or you know, of course, maybe people are just more complicated than that. But anyway, but <laughs> I, I do love that though. Party at my house tonight and every night. Um, but. Uh, but so obviously something like Better Man, which he wrote completely by himself, uh, is a great pop rock song, and you sort of do want, you did want more of that, you know. And and it's like, and and I think there really was a sense when I talked to him that that there was they would write a catchy song and then like throw it out because it was catchy, right. you know, which is like I that that kind of thing drives me nuts in general. Like when, when people do that, like I, I I do I find that maddening. Maybe I'm more A and R man than than, than, than critic, you know, I, like like because I'm, I'm definitely not a critic, but I, but I definitely like that that's always like the most mental thing to do. Um, but but you know, so so on that like Lost Dogs um, outtake album, there's a bunch of really catchy songs, right? Yeah, know? especially which, for that early 2000s era when they went really sort of inward and right. very set kind of anti-pop songs. And then you listen to Lost Dogs and a lot of the catchy, you know, they were still writing those songs. They just didn't put them on records. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, I, I kind of agree with you on that. But at the same time, you know, I think in the context of 10, you know, they kind of have their catchy songs album now. And it's like, are you really going to write an anthem as beloved as alive at this point, or is right. it just going to sound like diminished returns? You know, like, like okay, we're going to try to write more, you know, we're going to write another black now, you know, right. it's like you already have black that already has a spot in the set list. So maybe you should write another tried, kind of song. I tried to get, I tried to, uh, I tried to get uh, Ed to tell me who black was about once in, in, in the, um, in, uh, we, we were talking, it was like a, the final part of my cover story. I was, uh, you know, I, I was in his hotel room. We were drinking until like five in the morning, and that was, you know, it, it was a great moment. It was, it was sort of the moment when I was like, okay, I guess I'm really working, you know, for Rolling Stone. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like, like it, it was kind of, it was, a, you know, especially for someone who, you know, like, you know, when you kind of grew up in the '90s and and 
Well, I really grew up in the 80s, but <laughs> but but uh, I finished growing up in the 90s. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, you know, it, it, so that, that was that was you know pretty amazing and a foreshadowing of, of crazy stuff to to come from for me. Um, but uh, but yeah, in the course of that, you know, and there really is that there really is that that moment when you're you know, if you're talking for hours and hours, you just start throwing stuff out. You'd be like. You know, I remember being like, "Who is black about?" Yeah. <laughs> you know, and he just he would not would not go there. You know, but um, but it, it's there's there's a lot going on in the album. I mean, we didn't even get into the fact, you know, like the amazing fact that this started with a dude who worked at a gas station getting a cassette and just singing over it, and they're like, "This guy." Right. You know, which is, right. which is one of the crazy, I mean, it was recommended through Jack Irons, so like somehow he had worked himself into this sort of like alt-rock cognoscenti at that time, but it is like an amazing story as far as discovering a frontman, and it could have been, as they said, like it could have been anybody. They could have, you know, heard that tape in a bad mood and or not gotten to them, and they, they could have gotten some other guy, and, and it never would have worked without him, you know? Well, I think, like, the lead of your story, they're, like, trying to think of, like, the other guy that they almost hired, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. is his name Ian, or... Uh, right, right, and wherever, right. And wherever Ian is right now, he's just uh, <laughs> very sad. Because it's not like you're just hiring... Like, I'm sure on some level you want to think, oh, like, we were we were already Mother Love Bone, we already have been the successful, you know, rising band. All we need to do is just get, like, another dude to sing over these wonderful tracks we made, you know? And yeah. It, it, but it's it's just so much more than that. It's I think there's part of being a successful band and sort of surviving is if you're like this fantastically gifted songwriter and riff maker or whatever, guitarist, realizing that that's all great, but the guy who like is going to like shed his charisma on a crowd of 50,000 people and write <laughs> catchy and, and write lyric and write like soul searching lyrics and, and, and do the vocal melodies. That guy's like more important than you, no matter how awesome your riffs are, and that's right. a hard thing to to accept, you know, because what you do seems so hard, <laughs> you know. You like you like listen to this riff, listen to how it just changes a little bit on the third, you know. I mean that that stuff's really technical and and and, and uh, amazing, but for the emotional connection, you need your guy. You well, need your guy. And then they'll also say eventually, like, okay, we formed this band, we started this thing, but uh, we're gonna let this singer that we hired take over the band eventually and, and become the general of the band um i think was very big of stone gossard and jeff Ament to do but you know th obviously there was a lot of self-interest in that as well uh to eventually make that decision um yes eddie vetter if eddie vetter shows up on your tape and you're starting a band i think that's better <laughs> than winning the lottery it, it seems even less likely than that so Right. Glad it happened. We would not be here. Of course, we would not be here doing this podcast today if, if that had not happened. That's clearly the most important thing about the Mama San tape uh, being made. Brian, it's always a pleasure talking with you, man. I appreciate your insight. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, man. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. So that was Brian Hyatt talking about 10. And now we are going to transition to my interview with Mark Pellington. Uh, the director of Jeremy. Uh, this was really interesting to hear about how this video was made, what the thought process was, the controversy around the video when it was released, and the impact on Pearl Jam's career, and, and, and why Eddie Vedder kind of got freaked out by the response to this video and how that impacted Pearl Jam's decision to engage with MTV uh, in the wake of this video. So here's my interview with Mark Pellington. I heard an interview where you were talking about 
sort of the legacy of, of the Jeremy video and how people still will ask you about it and how I think you even had a line where you said that this is going to be on your tombstone. Oh, yeah, for <laughs> sure, for sure. Why do you think that is? I mean, it's been, you know, over 25 years now, but you know, it, it does seem to be a video that people remember. It's like burned into their consciousness. You know, do you have any thoughts on why that is? Mm, many. Because um, well, obviously you did a great job directing it, so that's the number one reason. Well, you know, I, th- I think about this for, you know, the kid who played Jeremy, um, Trevor Wilson, was 13 years old, right? 12, 13 years old when we filmed that video. He he passed away about two months ago. Oh, wow. Right? At the age of 37. And he drowned in Puerto Rico. And um, so within the last year, within the last year, you know, articles would come up, like everything from like super highbrow articles in The New Yorker about the raised arm rage of white youth and how Jeremy was this kind of, uh, you know, seed of, uh, basically tried to connect Jeremy to white male shooters in the violent culture, right? So yeah. Just like that, that DNA, DNA slash zeitgeist slash, slash kind of, um, you know, what, what, what is it in alienated youth and anger, right? So you got, you got that in the soup. Um, the death of the prototype of the kid um, who was 13 who was now who was now thirty seven so that death is symbolically just like wow that was pretty that's pretty heavy which you know i i mean I spoke to his mother I texted Eddie uh told him I hadn't spoken to Eddie in many years, but like that just uh, i mean the uh, the death number one would be is something that kind of brings up a lot of feelings and emotions but um you know it also was like in the same year as the anniversary, right? So yeah. you've got you've got that. He's I'm 53 right now. I wrote it when I was, you know, probably 30 when I wrote the treatment for it. But I was writing it very much from the point of view and from feelings that I had when I was 13 and 14, and alienation from my parents and not feeling heard and. So a lot of the subconscious kind of sub-primal, archetypical, archetypal uh, feelings of alienation and loneliness and um, child abandonment and, you know, all those really primal, universal feelings that spoke to kids then have spoken to that, spoken to kids throughout over 25 years. And I think that that classic kind of archetypical um, pain and alienation and feeling of loneliness and frustration, whether it's manifest in rage or anger or, and then the unforeseen, un godly shootings are just, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big powder keg with a long lineage of 
socio-political, historical, emotional, and cultural history. Yeah. So I think the, the long-lasting quality of it, why people still bring it up and the why it probably still holds true, is that those ingredients are kind of universal and classic. What really pushes it, though, that makes it, that makes it transcend into, um, you know, let's say it's artistic in that it lasts, has lasting value, is Eddie's performance. Right. And that seed. So you put you fuse Eddie's purity of performance with the purity of the kind of universality and classicism of the idea. You know, certainly the rendering of it, the performance of the kid, um, and then the execution of it, and the combination of ideas. You know, the the touches here, the image here, all those details directorial details are all kind of um, uh, cherries on top of the Sunday. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I, uh, no, no one would know like, Ooh, what other rendering of it would be? Um, would it have stayed as successful, i.e. having an imprint if it was executed differently? No one ever knows. Only, you know, only one only knows the one piece. But I just know personally from where it came from, you know, where those ideas came from and what those feelings were are very embedded. And so they were embedded in the kid, they were embedded in the in Eddie, they were embedded in me. And so every person I've talked to, musician, artist that I've met over the years that was affected by that is shared. Right? Yeah, right. So well, that is a very, very long-winded yet kind of like my summation of of kind of my perspective on it after all this time. No, I mean, and a lot of that makes sense. You know, it, you know, you said something interesting earlier about how you know it's kind of hard to tell what exactly combination of elements goes into you know a video surviving as long as that video has and having an impact on people. It is interesting, though, and I don't, I don't know if you've seen this, but, like, you know, there was actually another video for Jeremy that was made before you were brought on, and you can see it on YouTube now. There's a, there's a bootleg version of it. And I know, you know, you're not going to comment on, on another director's work, but for me, like, watching both videos, the difference with yours, or one of the differences, is the focus on Eddie Vedder. And as you said, is, you know, obviously the, the, the actor who played Jeremy does a great job. That's a very powerful part of the video. But when I watched the video again this morning, I was really struck by how powerful Eddie Vedder's performance is. And that really is, I think, where the impact comes from. Just the fo the way you shoot it, the way he's acting. And it is interesting given, you know, it seemed that Eddie Vedder was uncomfortable with music videos. And yet, he did such a great job in this video. Like, what was it like working with him? Was he uncomfortable you know, being in this process? Because, you know, they had done performance videos before this, but this was the first sort of, you know, con conceptual video. Um, I mean... He wasn't uncomfortable at all. I mean, I think it, I don't think it, was, it wasn't really acting. I don't, you never ask these guys to act. You just... They're, they're narrating it. Right. Right? So, you know, he, this is definitely a narration. He's telling a story. And, um, you know... There's a boy I remember. He was fucked up, and 
this is what happened. So he's basically, he's telling you the story. So it's an electronic campfire, right? And you're circling around him and he's telling you the story and you put him in the environment. Like, And it's, again, that's all it is. Where, where you put the camera, how you move the camera or not move the camera, and how you light and move and edit. Those are all the things that, you know, the camera's in the right place. Like we circled around him and he did three takes and that was it. Because like he just was unleashed and... You know, and there's still there's sections of it that still give me chills, and a lot of that's in the arc in the architecture of the song, the the dynamics of the song of the the slow build, the rise, the fall, the rise up again, the the the, the holding back, and then the third act. It's very cinematic. It's like literally classical. It's like a movie. The way that it you know it's kind of like the structure of the song from its un unfurling to its closure is exactly like a movie. And so his unleashing you into the third act of the movie is the second act climax. And it's just, it's just unnerving and because it's so powerful and it's like he's possessed, right? So it's like, he's just like, but again, that's like his head and where the camera is and the eyes and like, he's, that's just him. You could ask him. I don't, I don't, these guys don't aren't thinking about it. This is pure, you know. They're they're in, they're an in instinct. It's right. like capturing a scene from an actor. They're not necessarily. It's not contrived. It's just like it. It is what it is. The yeah. same way he did live videos. The same way he just was performing it. And actually, perhaps the the enclosed nature of the camera being around him, or him having to be in a. He was on a, like a chair a, or a chair on like a little thing. I know he was sitting on something. He wasn't standing. That again makes you kind of bound, right? So you're internalizing it rather than externalizing it for a stage. You're going into your kind of memory, into your pain, into so it's an internal thing that he was then unleashing in a very contained space. Right. You know, you mentioned earlier about how when you wrote the treatment for this that you were drawing on sort of your own experiences being 13, 14 years old and sort of the alienation that everyone feels at that age. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this record came out when I was 14. So, like, when I saw the video for Jeremy, I thought it was, like, the greatest video I'd ever seen. Like, it, I had a visceral reaction to it that was very strong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I read a little bit about how you kind of came to work on this. And it's my understanding that, like, because you were already a big-time music video director at that time, you know, worked with U2, Public Enemy, and lots of other big artists, and I know you'd also worked at MTV before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's my understanding that, like, when Jeremy was first sent to you, you turned it down, and then you went back to it later on and then agreed to do it. Like, I imagine that you must have heard something in the song that connected with you, and that's why you decided to do it. Like, what was that process? You know, like, I, don't, I, don't, I think it was my conversation with him that made me really... Um, I can't even remember that, you know, the circumstances at the time were, it was done in 92, right? My father was really sick. So my father was sick and I was at the time working on a documentary about my dad. And like my dad had Alzheimer's. So I was churning with a lot of childhood pain. So I think I was in that and working on that. So when I first heard the song, I'd like, you know, I, I was like cognizant of like, 
um, their first two videos. I was like, yeah, yeah, they're fine. But I don't think, I think when I listened to it, I was working on something else at the time, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to pass. I just, it didn't hit me. Like, normally I could listen to a song, but like, holy fuck. They're like, well, would you talk to Eddie? So it was only after I spoke to him that I was like, I, I got it. And I, then I paid much more attention to it, and I heard the song. I was like, okay. Then just the ideas poured out of me. So I think it was just like a momentary decision at that time of like, yeah, I don't, yeah, I was, I was, I was focused on other catharsis. So then I pushed that all into the video, which was good because then it made me really fuse what I was working on with my dad and my own personal stuff. And I kind of put all that into the video. Yeah. And I mean, was it a? I mean, was it basically a matter of you just coming coming up with the treatment, or did they have input on the video as well? Like, how? What was that? Oh, well, I like? spoke to him. He told me, you know, the real story about the kid. He told me the real, the real history of it. And then I just was writing notes and just writing note cards, and which I still have all of my like original. So then I just sat down for hours and just listened to the song in a loop and just like wrote a bunch of notes down and like images popped up in my mind and and then I wrote the treatment and and then I lost the treatment on a computer it was like an early you know since 92 whatever DOS I remember like that I lost the treatment and it was like eight pages long and I was distraught for like 10 minutes and I was like Fuck it, and I had to sit down and do it again. So I think perhaps the first pass was probably more logical. So the second one, I think I just sat down and it just it poured out of me, and was probably a little more stream of consciousness and a little more uh, riding on emotion rather than logic. Yeah, I, I remember that, and then I just. That was it. I just like sent it in, and they said we don't want to be in it playing. And I was like, thank God, you know, because I, I hate <laughs> that. And but we want to be in it, and in some way, shape, or form. And then we quickly just, you know, just kind of jumped into the production aspect of it. Now, you said earlier that you were that you had seen like the first two videos that they had done, which were for Alive and for Even Flow. Like, were you a fan of that record? Like, what was your familiarity with Pearl Jam going into? Jeremy. I like Nirvana more. I was more of a Nirvana <laughs> fan, frankly. I liked it. It's like I, I mean, like like anybody, I would. I'd only like like anybody. I watched MTV all the time, and you know, they just were on brainwash rotation, and they were they were fine. You know, like I said, like Nirvana was a little more punk, right? Like you know, and and I I was. I, if you just put a gun to my head, I'd say I like Nirvana more. I liked Pearl Jam. They were very powerful. I thought they were very powerful, but I wasn't like a rabid, huge fan. I liked the record. They just reminded me more of Zeppelin, and Nirvana reminded me of something else. Right. And did that switch for you at all after working on this video, or did you do you still feel that same way? No, I don't know. I mean, I... I think I grew to appreciate Pearl Jam's chops and musical 
I mean, it's, it's just like it's like two great foods that you love. There was never, I never had to make it. There was no choice that was necessary. <laughs> just a deeper appreciation, I think. Right. How did you find the actor who plays Jeremy? We were, we were going through casting, casting tapes, and all these. You know, a lot of kids were being very um, angst-ridden, like very like. And then this just so you would you know you'd play the song. Song would be playing and they just would be doing their thing and you're like okay there's some so there's a kid frustration frustration and expressing anger and uh, you know whatever direction you're given the casting director and then just this kid came on he looked very sullen and he didn't do nearly the same amount of acting as the other people and he just looked very more subdued and a little more dangerous in that way and we found out later he was sick as a dog. Okay, but it was really what drew me to him, and just like a close up of him with the song, I was like, "Ooh, that feels right." And that's kind of how I cast videos. It's just like a feeling, a face. So now, I mean, even to this day, I still just I just, I just play the song and sit there and don't say or do anything. Just let me see, because it gets in you, and you can just see how it feels. Right. So I think that actually probably started there. Yeah, and I mean, when you watch the video. You know, he's definitely giving off a sense of vulnerability more than anger. Like you feel more, and, and, and again, like as a kid, it was very easy to relate to him mm-hmm. watching the video. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously the video you make the video, the video comes out, and there's a controversy with the video at the end where there's an image of a gun being put. Where, where, where he puts a gun in his mouth, and MTV ends up cutting that frame, and there's confusion about whether. Jeremy actually commits suicide, or if he like shoots his classmates. Mm-hmm. And I know you've talked about that being a frustrating thing as a director, because the censorship sen- essentially made the video more confusing <laughs> in the end. Well, right? I, I think it changed the meaning. Yeah, so confusion and um, you know, yes, one could imply one 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 could make the assumption that gun blood on them was they were shot versus you know his brains splattered over them you know and on them and the blackboard you know so you know if you listen to the lyrics deep enough try to erase this motherfucker you know it's like it's pretty clear that through the also through the idea of like the gestures of being frozen so he he's you know he, everybody's frozen and the whole thing in some sort of pose of taunting or laughing at him right well here's the final the final frame of freezing is them in that immediate reaction of shock right. you know, so it, it falls in line but you know it just it depends on people's level of aesthetic ability to, to i mean the, their ability to read the read through it but for 98 percent of the people oh he shot them and that's just wrong that's just the censorship made the meaning different than the real meaning. Right. You know, my memory of Jeremy is that it was on approximately 98 times a day. Yeah, <laughs> it, was it was on a lot. When did you realize that this was going to be a huge video? Pretty early on. Pretty, you know, within the first... You know, remember, I worked at MTV for six, seven years, so... I still had a lot of friends, and I was only 
I was only two years out of it, so I was still very, very close to the people. So it was pretty, it was pretty clear when you would see it all the time that it was in that heavy rotation. It wasn't until like, wow, it's like, wow, this is on all the time. Like, and I'm going to the store. I'm going to like any place I'd walk out in New York. I'd you know in some bar where you'd see it. It was like, boy, it's like every I saw it on all the time. You know, so and they were just blowing up bigger and bigger and bigger. So it was like the right video at the right time. I mean, that must have been an exciting thing for a video that you made to have that kind of impact. I mean, at some point, does that start to turn though, where it's too much? No, I mean, no, I mean, I've had videos that had been played before, never to that degree, and yeah. never, never that had that. You know, like they were kind of serious like that. Or they just were taking off like you're again, you could ask Sam Bear the same thing with like Teen Spirit or you could ask any director over the year when they've made something that's ooh, that goes gets into the pop culture language. You know? Um you know, so in a way you're just you're along for the ride. And uh no, but you don't get you don't get sick of it because people responded very well to it and it was it was kind of emotional um but then when it started to become a little bit about like the confusion about it that's when they started getting antsy and you know again you're 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 there it's not your piece you're there interpreting it for the band the band has to speak for it i remember i did a foo fighters video for best of you and you know it's a long piece, and in the middle of it, I had this idea for like the song has this like beautiful dropout right in the middle of it musically, this like kind of almost like a halfway like a little bridge, and I wanted to put a shot of the twin towers falling in there, like to me it was the like the way the nine o two one o text works in Jeremy is just like you you know where you are in that that you know that you're in America, you know you, it was just like a cultural reference that was completely absurd but it let it put everything in perspective and i wanted to do that and dave was like you know we have to speak for this so i don't want to make a statement about 9-11 i was making it about like powerlessness yeah and inability to control anything and just like just the image of it crumbling but i understood he's the one who had to speak for it you know, he is the one who had to say to live with it yeah that's interesting i mean that You've kind of answered my next question in a way because, you know, hearing you talk earlier about writing the treatment for Jeremy, it was clearly a very intense personal expression for you, you know, what you put into the video and taking from your own life as well as being inspired by the song. You know, you know, as a person who's made a lot of music videos and worked at MTV, I'm wondering, like, what are your thoughts on, like, the impact of this iconography on music? I mean, did you feel like at a time... Like for a time that you had like maybe an outsized role in communicating what that song meant to people. Hmm. No. Because to me, when I think of Jeremy, I mean, I love the song, but the video is a defining sort of image yeah. of what I think of when I think of that song. Yeah. Well, um, that's a, that's where the merger of the two. That's where like the music. Well, that that's a back. That's a nice backhanded compliment, actually, to the form of music video. That if you say you can't imagine the song, you can listen to the song, but you can't imagine it without the video, right? 
that's that's a great tribute to the video. Like, so if you can think the same thing about teen spirit, if you just listed all the things we hear the song, it's like, oh, I think of the video. Right. It means that an impact as opposed to like, okay, I can't remember. You know the song. I love the song "Under the Bridge." Chili Peppers. Maybe is that Anthony Kiedis running? Was he <laughs> running? Whereas, like, give it away, give it away now. Like, I remember them painted in silver. Right. You know, um, and it's changed over there. It's changed. The impact of videos has changed. The importance of them has changed. They almost die, then they come back, but now they're completely different. But you know. Beyonce is the new Pearl Jam. You know, I mean, it's it's all pop and R and B and that kind of imaging that is you know referential and rock is kind of like in the back seat or the in the trunk, <laughs> and you know, R and B and hip hop and that stuff is in the foreground. Right. You know, again, I mean, this this video had a huge impact after it came out. It cleaned up at the VMAs. It made a big impact on Pearl Jam's career. It seems like two, you know, they, Pearl Jam didn't make another video after Jeremy for a long time, and it seemed like Eddie Vedder at least had, if not misgivings, like mixed emotions about the impact of the vid, of the video, uh, it, you know, in the aftermath. Like, did you ever talk to him about that? I mean, obviously sure. he did a great job with it. Like, what was that conversation yeah, like? Yeah, we stayed in touch over the years. I did a Cameron Crowe and I did a film for them in '99 called Single Video Theory, which was about the making of Yield. And um, you know, I just, I just think, like I said, they write a song about a certain thing, and the kid kills himself. But if you make that, and people think that, oh wait, the video is about him killing people, and people are attacking you and saying you're inciting violence, and real kids shoot people later and say I was inspired by Jeremy, like that would, yeah, I'd be like, see, videos are fucked up, man. <laughs> so I don't think they singularly were criticizing me. And it was pretty, the, the, the uncensored version was, was like, was easy to find when, when the internet started, it wasn't, it's not hard to find the, the real version. Anybody can go on my website, you know, it's like anybody can find that. It's not, but back then you couldn't. So it was just kind of like, you know, there, that was like the old days, pre-internet right where you couldn't just see all different versions of different things so censorship was a far bigger deal then because there was you know there was cable tv now it's fuck anything the making of the video would already be out there <laughs> you know there's just it's, it's harder to keep a secret or to keep the truth from people now when was the last time you watched the jeremy video mm. I don't know, under less than six months ago. And what was that experience like? I mean, what, what were your feelings revisiting it? I always love it. It always gives me chills. Yeah. It's like, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty perfect. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know what I mean? It's still, it still holds up. And a lot of videos from those days don't, even though like some of the film stock or whatever. But now that becomes retro. So that becomes then, you know, like uh, 
hipster now because people want it to look like early 90s stuff, you know what I mean? That's right. what, that's what I find so funny. No, it's like his performance and the song and the dynamics and the the feeling of it still still holds up. Yeah. Well, Mark, thanks for giving me some time today, man. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It. It's been great talking with you. My pleasure. Just let me know where, how and where I could see it or, or listen to it or pass it on to my to my tribe. I will. I'll send you a link. Once All right. It goes thanks. Up. All right, man. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. So that was Mark Pellington talking about the Jeremy video. And um, that's a wrap now on our first installment of Vitalogyology. I think we thoroughly have analyzed this record, uh, the first Pearl Jam record, and I look forward to doing more. So uh, thank you so much for listening. I think this is going to be a fun process. And uh, I also want to do a, a quick shout out to our sponsor of, of this week's episode, Blue Apron. Um, always a longtime supporter of this podcast, and we always appreciate uh, everything that they do. So, guys, thanks again for listening to this episode of Celebration Rock. Uh, we will see you again next week.